Hello and welcome to Talking Tudors, a fortnightly podcast about the ever-fascinating Tudor dynasty. My name is Natalie Gruniger and I'll be your host and guide on this journey through 16th century England. Are you ready to step through the veil of time into the dazzling and dangerous world of the Tudor court? Without further ado, it's time to talk Tudors. to Talking Tudors episode 137. I'm your host Natalie Gruniger and I'm so glad that you could join me. As this is the first episode of the month I'd like to begin by thanking the wonderful patrons who continue to support this podcast and welcome patrons who joined the Talking Tudors family in November. A very warm welcome to our Kelty, Crystalline, Kate, Josephine, welcome Hilary, May, Maria, Leanne, Lisa, Kale Prosser, KD Merck, Jean, and Zed Shaw. I'm so very grateful for your immense generosity and support. If you love the podcast and tune into every episode, perhaps you'd consider becoming a Talking Tudors patron. Just click on the Be My Patron on Podbean badge on the homepage of my website, www.onthetudortrail.com, or click on the Be a Patron button on the Podbean app. Join the Talking Tudors patron family and in addition to receiving lots of Tudor-themed goodies, you'll be automatically entered into our patron-only monthly giveaways. December's prize is a Tudor Rose Collection Candle Package, sponsored by Clio Global. Clio's Tudor Rose Candle recreates the aromas of Henry VIII's court. This month, Talking Tudor's patron prize will feature a Tudor Rose Candle, along with art prints of Henry VIII and Anne Boleyn, created by Clio Partner Royalty Now. All patrons are also eligible to attend monthly Talking Tudors live talks, which take place on Zoom. These events are exclusive to patrons. At the end of the month, I'll be chatting to Tracy Borman about her new book, Crown and Scepter, and much more. Please get in touch with me if you'd like to register for the event. You can also support the podcast and share your love of Tudor history with the world by buying Talking Tudors merchandise. There are a number of designs and products available, including phone cases, notebooks, and apparel. New items will also be added over time. Check out all the products at talkingtudors.threadless.com. I'd love to see pics of you wearing or using your Talking Tudors merch, so please do tag me on social media and use the hashtag #ILoveTalkingTudors. Now, on to today's episode. I'm excited to welcome Katie Marshall back to the show to talk about Mary, Queen of Scots. As a 20-year-old historical researcher, the lives of history's figures have always played a huge role in Katie's life. After having attended a growing number of historical talks by historians who she greatly admired, Katie felt that she wanted to engage more actively with researchers who shared her passion. She has since joined multiple online historical courses and discussions, reviewed newly released historical books, as well as made several videos marking events that occurred on a particular day in history. Earlier this year, Katie started her own blog, Katie's Chronicles, which has received attention from several popular historians. Her most popular recent articles include the topics of the early life of Mary, Queen of Scots, the Nuremberg Chronicles, and reconsidering the legacy of the 1605 gunpowder plot. Alongside her historical interests, Katie is a Classic Brit Award-nominated soprano who has performed around the UK and overseas, having had the opportunity to work with many acclaimed musical directors and composers and performing in many historical locations. She also released an album in 2018, Voice Divine, which is a collection of classical, sacred and musical theatre pieces. Through her music, Katie has been made an ambassador for the Prince's Trust, Born Free Foundation and Children's Air Ambulance. My conversation with Katie is coming up after this short musical interlude, Time Stands Still, from the third and last book of songs, 1603, is performed by my very talented guest, Katie Marshall. Time stands still. 
Welcome back to Talking Tutors, Katie. How are you? Thank you. I'm good. Thank you. Thank you for asking me back. It's really nice to be here. Yes, it's so lovely to see you again. So it's been a little while since we last chatted. So could you please just introduce yourself to our listeners and just tell us a little bit about your background? Well, I'm Katie Marshall and I'm a 20 year old historical researcher and I've loved the Tudors for as long as I can remember. I've attended lots of talks, lots of online events through the Tudors and I recently started my own blog, Katie's Chronicles, which has introduced me to a lot of sort of events and characters from the sort of long 16th century. Um, I've done the Nuremberg Chronicles, um, the Witches of Beaver Castle and many others that I've really enjoyed doing that side of research and sharing it with people. I'm also on Twitter, Katie History, and also recently I started getting into classics alongside my love for the Tudors. It's also a big love of mine, so I've been doing Latin performances um, with a small group of readers, including Llewellyn Morgan from Bracenose College, Oxford, and Emma Kirkby, whose work in early music I've always admired, so it's wonderful to be part of a project making classics more accessible, which I think is really important. And alongside my history and research work, I'm also a classical soprano. I've performed around the country, and I've sung on the music track of Downton Abbey. And I think that my music is quite connected to my love of history. They both require sort of awareness of the time period that music came from. And I've been lucky to sing a lot of 16th century music. There are some beautiful music out there. So yes, that's a bit about me, really. Yes, you're quite exceptional. I'm a huge fan of yours, Katie. I think you are absolutely amazing all the things you oh, do and I encourage people to to go and listen to you singing one of your you know beautiful songs because it is so atmospheric and as you say connected to what we we love so that's great yeah. now the last time we we talked we focused on Mary Queen of Scots's early life so today we're going to kind of pick up from where kind of where we left off and look at Mary returning from Scotland maybe tell us a little bit about how she was received when she came back after being in France for so long yeah so she'd left Scotland and even though she became Queen of Scots at six days old, she left to live in France to marry the Dauphin of France age five. So she'd really come back um, to Scotland age 18 and it was a completely alien place to her. Uh, the outside world saw Scotland as quite primitive and obsessed with family honour and, and the disputes that went with that. Um, so Mary was actually quite vulnerable when she first returned because she had to rely on her half-brother, James um, Stuart, the Earl of Moray because he knew a lot more about her. He controlled government while she'd been away and she went along with a lot of his appointments and his ideas because he had a better experience at handling the factitious nobles. But also I think the atmosphere of Scotland was a big shock to Mary. It was very cold, it was windy compared to France where she'd grown up and it must have appeared quite bleak and open when she first got back. It's so different, it couldn't have been more different to France. But she did her best to uh, recreate the, the French court that she'd become so familiar with that she'd grown up with and luckily she was a big fan of outside sports um, and Scotland was so suited to that so she carried on hawking, hunting, doing archery. She also had an extensive library of books and Melville, her ambassador, said that in her spare time she read upon books and the histories of diverse countries but she also sang and played the lute so she did a lot to sort of make herself comfortable when she first returned but importantly she brought back a sort of glamour to the Scottish monarchy that had been gone for so long there'd been a regency before she'd come back and um, Scotland hadn't known an adult monarch for many many years she was always dressed lavishly she loved weddings she often paid for the banquets and the bride's dress and she went shopping in Edinburgh when she first got back buying hordes of jewellery and plate one of her main concerns was creating a sort of crown jewels for Scotland and inheritance to keep that grandeur that she'd um, brought back. But it wasn't all fun and games because uh, she also had the quite serious issue of the religion of Scotland because Scotland had become officially Protestant in 1560 and Mary was a very devout Catholic monarch but she had an idea that she'd be accommodating to um, her Catholic subject. She wouldn't persecute them in any way for not sharing her beliefs. But this didn't stop her facing opposition, so notably John Knox, who was very 
interesting character in a lot of ways. He had very stirring sermons, which he preached from his pulpit in Edinburgh. He was one of the main leading forces in popularising Protestantism, but uh, he was very harsh on Mary. He said one mass was more fearful to him than 10,000 armed enemies landing on Scottish shores. But his opposition was twofold because he also hated the idea of female rulership. He saw it as an insult to God and totally incompatible with the natural order of things. He hated Mary's love of dancing. He saw that as frivolous and proof that she was not fit for ruling. But overall, by her general subject, she was really well received and loved. And she was quite intelligent in her first autumn in Scotland with the religious settlement. And even Randolph, the English ambassador, praised how clever and pragmatic she was in bridging that gap between her personal beliefs and the Reformed Church of the Realm. And conversely, the Pope wrote to her in December anxiously because she wasn't being quite the Catholic champion that he'd expected her to be on her return and he suggested maybe she take Mary Tudor as her model but 13 days after her arrival she sent an envoy to Elizabeth because she was set on the idea of also being recognised as Elizabeth's heir to the English throne so she had quite a lot on her plate when she first got back to Scotland. Sounds like a a huge amount of of pressure and just um, tension from all different angles so and of course for any woman ruler at this point the theme of marriage comes up very quickly so at some point she marries uh, Lord Darnley so tell us how that comes about well who Mary marries was this enormous political question she's a widow at age 20 which is quite unusual and would her husband be subordinate to her as a queen regnant and Also, would he be a Catholic like Mary herself? That could carry the problem of him having a kingdom of his own. And we've seen the problems of that when Mary I married Philip II of Spain. She could be dragged into foreign wars. But the other alternative was her marrying a Protestant, maybe even one of her own subjects. But that would carry the problem of jealousy of the noble. She'd favour one faction above another. So instead, she turns to Elizabeth, because after all, Mary's marriage is resting on her being named Elizabeth's successor or completely scuppering all chances of that. And Elizabeth lays down a few rules. She says that any imperial candidate, any monarch that or prince that Mary married would automatically make her her enemy. It would be too threatening. So Elizabeth's preference is that she marries an English nobleman that would be ultimately loyal to Elizabeth, that it sort of would balance things for her. But that frustrates the the Scots quite a lot because Elizabeth doesn't outright name anybody first. And someone even said, is the Queen of England to become a man? (laughs) Because she was obviously playing for time. She wasn't sort of putting her, her marker down anywhere on anyone. But ultimately she does. She recommends that Mary marry Robert Dudley in spring 1563. And nobody could believe that Elizabeth had suggested him. He was widely rumoured by all of Europe to be Elizabeth's favourite, her most intimate companion. Not only that, he was born of two generations of treason. His grandfather had been in the trio of Empson and Dudley, who were uh, Henry VII's hated tax collectors. And his father was executed when he got caught up in the uh, Lady Jane Grey scandal. And he was also heavily suspected of murdering his own wife, Amy Robsart. She's found at the bottom of the stairs dead. And everyone thinks that Robert Dudley has done this. So he has a better chance of marrying Elizabeth. So how could Mary ever have seriously considered him? Elizabeth tries to persuade her. Um, She even makes him Earl of Leicester to make him more appealing because he didn't even have a noble title before then. Elizabeth makes this other idea. She says, why don't you come to the south of England and we'll live together as an extended royal family? (laughs) You marry Dudley and, you know, he can still come riding with me, but he'll be your husband. It's just a ridiculous idea. So Mary decides she's going to do her own thing. She's going to marry Darnley. He is a tall, good-looking man. He has golden hair. Um, He's one of the only people who can look Mary in the eye because he's six foot. He has an athletic build. But most unusually, he is young. It's really unusual in the 16th century, especially for royal marriages, that 
potential um, matches would be young. Um, like Henry VIII's sister married the elderly King of France, who was 30 years her senior. So Mary jumped upon the chance of somebody who was not only young, but also had a claim to the English and the Scottish throne. But she didn't realise yet that he was also ambitious and arrogant and lazy. When Mary knighted him and created him a baron and Earl of Ross all on the same afternoon, which is a pretty extraordinary rise in status, he drew his dagger on the messenger because he also didn't bring the news that he'd been made Duke of Albany like he'd hoped, which ultimately he was given, but he was completely spoilt and unpredictable. But this was Mary's sort of this is my life moment. She ignores Elizabeth's disapproval. Elizabeth tries her best to stop the marriage, but she's doing everything. She's staying with her part of the bargain. She's marrying an Englishman. She's committed to get married and have children. She's doing everything that Cecil, Elizabeth's chief advisor and every male counsellor had been pleading Elizabeth to do. And Mary marries Darnley despite Elizabeth's disapproval on the 29th of July 1565 and proclaims him king. So this was her glory moment. Yes, as you were speaking, I wrote a big what if about Dudley. Like I just, it's <laughs> interesting to think what would have happened had she married a Robert Dudley. Perhaps it would have ended yeah. very differently for her. But things for the arrogant, handsome Darnley don't finish off very well for him, unfortunately. So there's, of course, a lot of debate about whether Mary played any part in her husband's death. So what do you think, Katie? Well, it is the big question that's been around for the last 400 years about Mary. She certainly had lots of reasons to hate her new husband, Darnley. The marriage soured remarkably quickly. Um, at the end of the same year, they basically sort of their relations had completely broken down. The thing is that Darnley wasn't happy with just being Mary's husband. He wanted the crown matrimonial, which of which would have given him equal power and Hadley Hadley outlived Mary, he would have been king in his own right. He'd also murdered her close friend and secretary, David Rizzio, in front of her in her private apartments while she was six months pregnant, which, you know, Mary never forgave him for this. And he was writing abroad to all the Catholic powers of Europe saying that Mary was dubious in the faith because of her tolerance of Protestantism. But also, he made a, an enemy of the Lords. He was effeminate, he was irritating to them. He had an enormous ego and he soon became a complete national embarrassment. He was drinking, he had quite a showy and sort of erratic temper and he'd be going around Edinburgh while Mary was pregnant, drinking, having all this behaviour with his friends that really wasn't acceptable for a king consort. And he even failed to attend his own son's baptism. So at the end of November, there were these discussions at Craig Miller Castle, which Mary was at. She was involved with that. And it was sort of like a, what are we going to do about the Darnley situation conference? There were long conversations and Mary didn't want anything done that would harm her son's honour, his rights. Uh, she wanted everything to be entirely legal. And the Lord said, okay, leave it with us. And Murray will look through his fingers at it. Mary wanted nothing to do with underhand methods. She expected them maybe to beat some sense into him somehow. At worst, put him on trial for treason. But the next thing she knew was that on the 9th of February, 2am in the morning, the house Darnley was staying in is blown up with gunpowder. It's best shown in this sketch drawn up by English spies. Straight after it's happened, the house is blown up, but in the orchard lie the bodies of Darnley and his valet in only his nightgown. Next to them lies a cloak, a chair, a dagger and some rope, indicating how they escaped. But there's no mark on Darnley's body, no fracture, no wound and no bruise because they'd been strangled. And Mary was genuinely shocked, sort of frozen into inaction. She thought that she was the intended target of this. She'd been lodging in the same house until the night it happened. So you can see why she was just so broken down that her doctor had to plead to let her go to her favourite retreat so that she didn't have a complete mental breakdown. But she did make mistakes in the aftermath of this because the whole of Europe was aghast and... Mary got letters from Elizabeth I, from Catherine de' Medici, writing to her and begging her to avenge her husband's murder, to free herself of the scandal that all of Europe was talking about. They said just, you know, even if they, the culprits are those closest to you, it didn't even matter in the 16th century at this stage whether the true criminals were the ones punished. There were servants that could have been used as scapegoats to venerate the 
the crown and to calm the anxiety and the chaos that was ensuing but mary does nothing and to make it worse she marries the prime suspect for her husband's murder three months later because she believed that he would help her through this chaos and i think in my opinion she knew something was going on that the lords were going to do something to sort of wake Darnley up from this ridiculous show that he was putting on of embarrassing everyone. But I think if she had that brutality in her to murder someone, she was known to hate violence. She would have had the shrewd methods ready to cover it up. She wouldn't have let all of Europe talk that she had been the culprit. And the lords afterwards were swift enough to execute the lords that had been involved even some servants they knew the importance of of reputation and of looking like you you know you'd sorted it out you weren't leaving open ends then the only direct evidence that mary was involved are the infamous casket letters which moray and the scottish lords sort of presented to the english for investigation in october to december 1568 they were eight letters 12 sonnets and two marriage contracts that were allegedly sent from Mary to Bothwell, proving that they'd had an adulterous relationship. There are just so many problems with them. They're only translations and copies survive from French Scots to English, which has obvious problems with interpretation. And Mary wasn't even allowed to see them. They're not dated. Her commissioners weren't allowed to see them. And the English government, when they were looking so much to find some way to incriminate Mary, they couldn't find anything. She was acquitted. She wasn't found guilty, but she wasn't innocent either, in their opinion. The strange thing is that Moray was allowed to go back to Scotland with a £5,000 subsidy, and Mary was left in limbo because of this question mark over her head but the general consensus is that they were forgeries quite clumsy ones at that and historians have tried to do what elizabeth's commissioners failed to do um, all those years ago which is look at the evidence and try to make a judgment on mary's character but in my opinion if there had been something convincing there cecil and Elizabeth's counsellors would have just jumped on it. You know, they would have made big of any small crack in her character that they found in these letters, but they were just so jumbled together. They're so strange if you look at them. I think it says a lot that even they couldn't charge Mary when they were trying so hard to find something. It's difficult not to pity her, I find anyway. I just find <laughs> her actions were so often counterproductive and she just had the odds stacked against her and, and lacked those yeah. loyal supporters that Elizabeth so luckily had but um so after all this happens eventually she's actually imprisoned in scotland and forced to abdicate can you tell us a little bit about this chapter of mary's life well because of this question mark over her head about darnley's murder she's increasingly vulnerable and she's looking in this fog that's in front of her for anyone that has stood by her that could help her through it and unfortunately this leads her to increasing dependence on the Earl of Bothwell, James Hepburn, who was violently ambitious but in a different way to Darnley. He had two sides to him but all the lords knew that he was quite a brutal character but he'd always shown himself loyal to the crown. He'd even helped Mary's mother Marie de Guise all those years ago so he'd stood the test of time and Mary was so worn down by illness and utter despair that she was willing to give her troubles up to a powerful man. After all, she'd never not been married. She was used to putting her trust in her husband. She'd known nothing else. But unfortunately, Bothwell takes advantage of her. He locks her inside Dunbar Castle. He almost certainly raped her. Mary talks of his doings rude and how he ravished her. And she has no choice but to then marry him. And ultimately, this infuriates the lords because Bothwell becomes immensely powerful in such a small amount of time and they challenge the, the new couple. She marries him, as I say, only three months after Darnley's murder and she meets the rebel lords with Bothwell on Carberry Hill on the 15th of June. The Confederate lords, as they called themselves, were marching under a white banner and on it was a tree with Darnley's corpse beneath it and little James, Mary's son, crying out for vengeance on it. So it's quite... Um, blatant what they were that they were accusing Mary of being involved with this. It was quite a weird scene really the battle at Carberry Hill because they sort of played around the battle never really began um, they sort of played around with parlays of man-to-man -man chivalric combat which of course Bothwell loved because it was his style really but Mary refused to tolerate it she knew that 
it was all lost. Um, her troops were melting away as all this was going on. And she decides that it's best to give herself up to them, to wave a white flag um, and to allow Bothwell passage to get away maybe to find more troops but of course that never happens so in an extraordinary moment she walks across the battlefield to her enemies the people who have been opposing her accusing her and possibly the lords who actually organized the murder of Darnley and she expects to be transported back to Edinburgh with dignity but instead she is heckled she is shouted at with abuse people are crying out that she's a murderess that she's a witch she doesn't deserve to live and the next day she appears at the window to the townspeople completely disheveled and broken she's sort of half dressed her hair is everywhere <laughs> and you know it's such a difference from the woman that people had known as a princess in France and then worst of all they take her to Lochleven which is a completely cut off little bleak island in the center of a vast loch there's no chance that she could have escaped without connivance from inside and worst of all it was controlled by Margaret Erskine who was Moray's her half-brother's mother so so um, she was naturally hostile to her. She wasn't treated well at all. There was hardly any furnishing. And Mary's health completely, inevitably declined here. She tragically miscarries twins who are thought to be fathered by Bothwell. And at this moment when she's at her weakest, the lords come in with a piece of paper. They're filled with apprehension because on the 8th of December 1567 was Mary's 25th birthday. And this was the traditional time of when a monarch could reconsider lands and property and titles given out during their minority. Lords didn't want this at all because they knew that Mary wasn't going to let them keep all their lands. And they'd prefer to be a regent for Prince James, even though he was only a little boy. Yeah, so they, they hand him hand her a piece of paper, they force her practically at knife point to abdicate her throne. She's completely isolated and helpless. She can't send for help. And this is in the most horrible and unlawful way Mary's reign in Scotland ends. The scale of the trauma is just unbelievable, isn't it? What she had to endure. Now, somehow, at some point, she does manage to escape and escape Scotland and flee to England, putting her trust now, of course, in Elizabeth and spends around 20 years under house arrest. What was this period in her life like? Does it improve at all from all that awful stuff we've just been discussing? Well, whenever I think about 20 years under house arrest I just it's just incredible amount of time it blows my mind really probably because that's the age I am so it's like me spending my entire life in prison but it's it's her 13 years in France and her five years of personal rule in Scotland combined even more so it's just incredible that sometimes it's it's reduced to a chapter in a book it's such a long time but she's faced with this decision where does she go from here when she's escaped from Lochleven she could go to France and call upon her rights as Queen Dowager there she could try and retrieve her throne in Scotland but by that time she just wants out she's experienced so much in that in Scotland and I don't think she can bear another moment there so in Mary's words she flees like a fugitive she lives like the owls she drinks sour milk before she crosses the border in a fishing boat quite fatefully across the Solway Firth into England a place where she has no lands no family apart from Margaret Lennox who's Darnley's mother who obviously hates her she has no money what is her status now she's officially abdicated her throne but she straight away says that she you know she did this under duress and it doesn't stand for anything and she expects elizabeth to be her queen restorer she's resting all her hope on elizabeth being true in her promises that she was her sister queen so for 20 years she meanders through the midlands and derbyshire uh, she spends most of her time with the shrewsburys as her custodians 15 and a half years in fact among their various properties that was quite a big responsibility and at first i don't think that her captivity was that bad it was sort of more like a court in exile nobody really knew how to treat her she was a queen and she'd only a few days or weeks before been to all intents and purposes uh, an active queen but at first she had her own laundry 
laundresses, her ladies, her beloved Mary Seaton to come and do her hair that she was so dependent on periwigs, she called them at that point, because she'd cut all her amazing golden auburn hair short when she fled Scotland to avoid recognition. So Mary Seaton was a big help to her to keep up her queenly appearance. Uh, she had her own cooks, her own apothecaries, which was important because not a letter went by for the next 20 years before without Mary complaining about her chronic illnesses. She seemed to suffer from you know a constant pain in her side from rheumatism increasingly as those 20 years went on but she was quite lucky because she had sympathetic captors for a lot of her 20 years especially the shrewsbury's allowed her to ride out to go to buxton she the spa there that was one of the outings that she most looked forward to not least because it allowed her a bit of social life because she even met Robert Dudley there twice. I was <laughs> going to say, that... I, he was a fan of going there too, wasn't he? <laughs> yes, I think a lot of people were. It's a very popular place. Um, and she even met Cecil there as well. So it was, you know, strange that she met so many people there. Yeah, but probably. she always looked forward to it, connection to the outside world. But Shrewsbury also started showing her off a bit like a trophy at one point. He had this party trick that um, whenever the great and the good nobles of the Midlands came to one of his houses, he'd go like, have you ever seen the Queen of Scots? And they'd go, no. <laughs> and then he'd lead them into a room and go, ta-da, she's oh here. <laughs> so when these reports got to London, they were, their blood was boiling because she was meant to be in prison. <laughs> But she also loved um, needlework. That was a great comfort to her throughout her years in prison. She loved sitting with Bess of Hardwick. They'd gossip. She'd order the latest pattern books, normally on the themes of animals and nature. But they're also an important way for her to express her sense of humour. She had a great sense of humour. She loved playing around with anagrams. She did this one um, embroidery, which I think you can see, I think it's at Hardwick Hall. It's a ginger cat. You can guess who that's representing, who's famous for their ginger hair, Elizabeth. <laughs> and under the cat's paw is a mouse, and that's Mary. So she's, you know, she's making a point. She's, it's a political expression. She's using these, this embroidery to sort of express inside jokes and sort of distract her, I think, from her awful circumstances. And sometimes it did get terrible, her circumstances, especially at the end. These comforts and luxuries of a sort of court in exile didn't last. And right at the end, she had Amias Paulet as her custodian. Well, Mary said he was a jailer because to all intents and purposes, he was. These were her worst days at Tutbury Castle. This had a. This was a place, it was more like a fortified village. She complained about the wind whistling on all sides of her chamber. It was exposed to the inclemencies of heaven. It had a drainage problem. It was just an awful place. And to add to that, Paulet really despised her. He was a Puritan, so he sort of had an immunity to Mary's charms, which a lot of her custodians struggled with before. They sort of, they gave her a lot of leeway because she was so charming and it was hard to say no to Mary. <laughs> he had a particular suspicion of Mary's laundresses. He had them stripped down to their smocks when they entered and left the castle in case they were carrying anything for Mary. And he completely cut off Mary's correspondence from France which really hit her hard because these letters had sort of kept her sane, having that information, that connection to the world outside her captivity. And he, he was complaining endlessly about Mary. He just hated her. He despised her religion. Um, he th threatened to burn a, a packet once. Sometimes he was just plain nasty. <laughs> um, he, he threatened to burn a packet that came for her because he said, quote, it was full of abominable trash and he was referring to rosaries and devotional pictures and he just deprived Mary of everything that made her happy. Um, she was forbidden from giving alms to the poor because he thought that would gain her sympathy. But Mary always had this generous nature, so her time with Paulet especially really wore her down. Um, so it was very mixed, her captivity. It depended on heavily on the political situation at the time, how strict it was, but very varied. And I think it's a really fascinating time in her life. 
Absolutely. And such a long period, as you say, and having visited some of the properties where she was housed during this time, I think Tupper is a very interesting one that people can still visit today and, mm. and get a sense of, of really how bleak it must have been for her compared to some of the other places she was she was housed in. It's a very atmospheric property even, even today. I love it. All right. So can you tell us a little bit about Mary and Elizabeth's relationship? Obviously, there's been a lot portrayed, you know, in popular fiction and shows on television. So what was their relationship really like? I think it's very hard to tell, but at the beginning of Mary's return to Scotland, a meeting between them was almost absolutely certain. They were two queens, they were cousins, and in 1562 it came so close to the meeting, it was so tantalising for both of them, but the French wars of religion got in the way, and Mary was distraught when this was called off. She spent the rest of her life begging Elizabeth to meet her, to be her friend, a lot of their letters are extremely touching and Mary's constantly sending Elizabeth gifts and Elizabeth sometimes even sends them back. She sends um, Elizabeth a heart-shaped diamond. She hears about Elizabeth's sweet tooth and she sends her all manner of sweets, <laughs> sugar sculptures, which Elizabeth eats um, despite warnings that they could be poisoned. But I think that Elizabeth had heard about Mary's charms about her irresistible charisma and she was worried that she would be taken in. It's very difficult to know what she truly felt about Mary because she had to remain this Protestant figurehead. Um, she knew Mary was her nearest kinswoman. She was utterly dismayed at the idea of a monarch being forcibly deposed and sometimes she showed genuine solidarity with Mary. She's known to have wear her portrait around her neck after Rizzio's murder but she was really held back by her ministers you know they thought Mary was just a constant throbbing pain that wouldn't go away so it was very difficult for her but it's more it's easier to know how Mary felt about Elizabeth and she was quite fascinated by the idea of someone knowing what it was like to be a female monarch it's extremely unusual they were both incredibly engaging women and I think it would have been amazing if they did meet and I was just thinking what the time I think their relationship truly broke down was when Mary's son James was grown up he he was approaching 20 by the by the end of Mary's captivity but although he was a very intelligent boy um, Mary was dying to see him her whole time she hadn't seen him since he was 10 months old I think that's the last time she saw him that he'd been brought up to believe that his mother was a murderess that she, that she'd murdered his father and abandoned him to be with Bothwell so when Elizabeth dangles before him the prospect of recognising him as her heir, the thing Mary's craved all her life. James just can't resist and they sign the Treaty of Berwick in 1586 and this to Mary is just the ultimate betrayal. She's utterly enraged because it's acting like she's disposable, she's not even mentioned in the treaty because she's always held this vain hope that one day her son, her baby son who's now grown up would come and rescue her from her captivity but James had been starved of any natural affection for Mary and now Elizabeth and James completely turned their back on Mary and there's a, a very touching quote Mary said to have said after the treaty was signed was there anything so despicable and impious before God that an only child despoiling his mother of his own of her own estate but Elizabeth was looking after herself she was adopting James as her political son and after that Mary had no hope of ever being free because the two people she depended on had turned their backs on her and she was left with no one no family that could save her. What do you think is one of the most persistent misconceptions about Mary and Elizabeth's relationship? There are probably lots of them. Um, well, I think there's an obvious one, which is as tempting as it is, as much as films portray it, they never met. Their relationship <laughs> was completely played out through letters and ambassadors and how different it could have been if they did meet. At one point, they were only a few miles apart um, and Elizabeth changed her plan so she didn't bump into Mary. And I think that links into another misconception is that they were always enemies from the start, that you can't be Mary on Team Mary and Team <laughs> Elizabeth, <laughs> because um, Mary wasn't always Elizabeth's nemesis. Historically, we pit them against each other, but they personally were fascinated by each other. Only they could know what it was like to be each other, to be in each other's position. But her counsellors, Elizabeth's counsellors, were terrified of Mary. They would do anything to 
to stop Elizabeth thinking about her. And if there's there's one more misconception, actually, if I may, was that we can judge their reigns equally on an equal footing. Elizabeth was very lucky to have a Cecil and a Walsingham working on her side. And also she'd grown up in England and she'd watched from the outskirts of court. She could learn from other people's mistakes and she had her fair share of scandal in her early life with Anne Boleyn, her mother, being executed, with Thomas Seymour, the scandal there, and it taught her really valuable lessons of how to be discreet in dangerous times that really can't be learnt in any other way. When you compare it to Mary being shipped off to France age five and she comes back age 18 completely unfamiliar with Scottish culture. She'd been brought up to be Queen of France and she came back completely ill-equipped. And I don't think Mary's as politically naive as a lot of people make her out to be. She was a woman of action, whether that was right or wrong. I mean, sometimes it got into trouble sometimes it was exactly what the situation needed but we try to i saw this wonderful quote the other day that historians try to paint a portrait of people without them being in the room and i think <laughs> when i when i read That's that it's like yeah. it's completely true because sometimes we paint a flat an overly flattering portrait of people leaving out all their ugly parts but sometimes we paint people as worse than they really were and miss out their best feature and I think it's something really important to keep in mind when we're judging Elizabeth and Mary. That's so true I'm so glad you brought that brought that point up because I think one of Elizabeth's greatest gifts was how observant she was and the time she she had to watch and learn from everything that was happening around her which of course as you say Mary did not. Well, I think everybody listening knows that this story ends really brutally and awfully for Mary. So after almost two decades of imprisonment, she was executed at Fotheringhay Castle on the 8th of February, 1587. So can you take us just briefly through the, the sort of final events that led to the execution of an anointed queen? Yeah, so in the 1570s and the 1580s onwards, Catholicism had become this sort of forbidden fruit in England. They were increasingly repressed. There were laws against Jesuits. You have to remember this was the time of priest hunters and priest hides. It was really difficult to be a Catholic in the later years of Elizabeth's reign, and especially so after 1570 when she was excommunicated officially by the Pope. This freed Catholics from allegiance to Elizabeth, and they were actively encouraged to oppose her rulership. So it was really hard to be a good Englishman and a good Catholic at the same time. It was practically impossible. They were traitors by definition in the eyes of the English government. And Mary, being captive for 20 years, was sort of romanticised by a whole generation of young Catholics. They saw her as sort of being a sort of Rapunzel in this tower with the Protestant Elizabeth keeping her there. And they saw her as a a genuine alternative to Elizabeth's rule, the hope of a better future, but they just needed to find a way um, and that encouraged a lot of plots. And because the English government was really worried about this, they passed an act in 1585, the Bond of Association, which was really made with Mary in mind to increase the likelihood of charging her with treason. And it meant that if there was a plot to murder Elizabeth, not only the plotters themselves who were actively involved, but also any potential beneficiaries could be executed in law. It was regicide in law. Whether uh, Mary or any intended beneficiary was privy to a plot or not, they, it was a license to kill. They, it, you know, retribution was to be enacted on the spot. So with this in mind, there had been before a lot of plots to free Mary, to replace her as queen, replace Elizabeth as queen, but there had never been enough to truly charge Mary with plotting against Elizabeth or to persuade Elizabeth that Mary was guilty. But Walsingham was onto it and their trap was perfectly timed really because Mary had been, during the late years of the 1580s, she'd been deprived of news for a year. Her letters were piling up. So it was all sort of procured to make her desperate for information from the outside world. So when Gilbert Gifford turned up and said that he could get all these all these backlog letters to her via a secret a secret path which was the local brewer who would put the letters in a leather tube in the bung of a beer cask and Mary could also send her letters out this way. It really seemed too good to be true and that's because it was because Gilbert Gifford was a double agent working for Walsingham so when Mary sent out a letter it was decoded on the spot 
her code of Greek letters, numbers and symbols. They knew everything that was being said to her and that she was saying. So they just had to wait for a plot, really. And they didn't have to wait long at all because a young man, a well-educated, daring young Catholic, Anthony Babington, got in touch with her, detailing all the particulars of a plot that had all the hallmarks that they were looking for. The invasion from Catholic Europe, Catholic sympathisers that would rally to Mary's side, deliverance of her from her captivity, the things she'd been craving, and ultimately the dispatch of the usurper, Elizabeth. This was it, this is what they'd been waiting for, but Mary just had to agree to it. So because her reply was crucial, they sat there quite nervously waiting for days and days. And then finally, Mary's reply came and the damning line was set the six gentlemen to work on the accomplishment of their design. Thomas Philippe's the master cryptographer termed this the bloody letter. He was so convinced that this was the final straw for Mary. He even drew a gallows on the letter itself. After years of spying on her, of laying her traps, they'd finally got her. And they were so sort of chuffed with themselves that they added a postscript in Mary's own hand in her cipher asking for the names and qualities of these six gentlemen you know can we get a bit more from this seen as we've got this far but then Babington smelt a rat and he escaped but ultimately they'd got what they needed and all the conspirators were hanged drawn and quartered but the day came of Mary's extraordinary trial at Fotheringay for which there was no precedent it was just extraordinary and it was made really difficult for her to get out of this. The speeches were directed directly to the Lords, so she had to interrupt if she wanted to make a point. Um, and she claimed that the evidence was given in no particular order to deliberately confuse her. She was allowed no witnesses. I mean, Tudor law is very different to modern law, but this was, you know, they weren't taking any chances to let her get out of it. But even after this, Elizabeth really struggled with the fact that she still had to sign Mary's death warrant. How would Catholic Europe react that Elizabeth had murdered, could murder a Catholic anointed monarch with her own hand? And what makes a queen special if she can just be murdered in law? To, she can be executed it lays a, a very dangerous precedent and i find it hard to believe that elizabeth also didn't have her mother in mind yes, Anne Boleyn, i was just thinking that yeah <laughs> executed at her own father's hand she knew that this was possible and it had repercussions for years so after so much pressure cecil even told elizabeth that the spanish armada had landed a year early in wales and she needed to double her guards to panic her into signing so on the 1st of february she orders davison her secretary into her office she asks for pen and ink and she signs mary's death warrant elizabeth even after this blames it on a court conspiracy. She says that, you know, there was a pile of papers there. I didn't know that I was signing Mary Queen of Scots's death warrant. She completely washes her hands of it. But of course, she did sign it. And it was immediately pulled out from under her nose and whipped off to Fotheringay without any delay. And Mary was dead by the 8th of February. Elizabeth was one of the last to know, despite celebrations taking place all around the country and in London with bonfires. But Mary died a dignified Catholic martyr. It was a dramatic execution. I think, you know, it was tragic and brutal in a lot of ways, her execution, but it was also in keeping with her entire life, which was both tragic and beautiful. It was her finest performance. It was cinematic without the even the existence of cinema. And as Mary said, it was the end to all her troubles. Mary's motto in the end couldn't have been truer in my end is my beginning, because all subsequent British monarchs are descended from Mary, not Elizabeth, because she never married, she never had any children. And it's an extraordinary legacy for such a life that couldn't have been written down, you know, in a in a fictional way. It's just extraordinary. And she's a woman that continues to fascinate us. And I think that that's why, because she's so, the way she deals with all this trauma in her life is just extraordinary. And the fact that, as I say, every British monarch is descended from her is a, a legacy that she could never have dreamed of. What an extraordinary story. I'm sort of left feeling a little, I don't know, numb. I'm, I'm not quite sure what to say. Speechless, really. It's, it's just extraordinary, isn't it? And you've really brought it to life, Katie. Thank you so much. I always enjoy 
speaking to you very, very much. And I'm looking, I really need to see a book from you. When are we going to get a book from you, Katie? (laughs) Is that on the cards or not yet? Um, Well, I'd love to one day. You know, I've never, the most I've done is my blog, you know, um, but if I had the right support and, you know, the right opportunity came up, I'd love to do a series as well, to be honest, to take you know, because I think Mary's life deserves more recognition. Um, I don't think people quite realise, you know, all the ins and outs of her life. And I think that if people knew about it, they would be as hooked as me. Absolutely. <laughs> so, yeah. So thank you for giving me a space to share it with everyone. Oh, that's so amazing. And if you haven't listened to our first episode, I'll put that link up in the show notes as well. But please do that. Maybe it's a good idea to, to listen to that one and then this episode. But you, you've brought the details of her life to really to life in, in a short space of time. So, so thank you. And there is one more thing I'd like to ask you, and that is for a Tudor takeaway. So we always end with a little suggestion for our listeners to go off and, and listen to or watch after the show. So do you have a Tudor takeaway for us? There's actually a really good opportunity if you want to see some of the things related to what we've been discussing today. There's an, an amazing exhibition on at the British Library at the minute about Elizabeth and Mary. They even have the, the sketch of Darnley's murder that I mentioned earlier. They've got, I think, some of the letters Mary sent to Elizabeth and also the um, the ring that has Elizabeth and Anne Boleyn inside, which is extraordinary. So I think it's a very unique opportunity if you can, can get there. I still need to go. It's on till February 2022 but yeah that's really timely actually from what we're talking about but as well I'd encourage people to listen to some John Dowland music actually because he's a 16th century composer he writes just some beautiful music and really um, it's still relevant today it's you know it's beautiful moaning in a way it's that fashionable melancholy theme but I sing it when I go busking sometimes and people even though they've never heard it before they, they really enjoy it because it's strangely familiar to people yeah it's really beautiful music and it helps you connect with the 16th century in the Tudor age. Katie again it's been an absolute pleasure I hope I can lure you back on later on to talk to us again <laughs> about some other aspect of, of Tudor history but this has been really wonderful thank you so much for talking Tudors with us. Thank you. I've loved it. Thank you for having me. Well, that brings us to the end of this episode of Talking Tudors. Thank you so much for joining us. I absolutely love to hear from listeners. So if you have any comments or suggestions or just want to say hi, please get in touch with me via my website, www.onthetudortrail.com, where you'll also find show notes for today's episode. If you've enjoyed the show, please share the podcast with friends and family. And don't forget to subscribe, rate and review. I also invite you to join our Talking Tudors podcast group on Facebook, where you can interact with other Tudor history lovers and hear all the behind-the-scenes news. You'll also find me on Twitter. My handle is on the Tudor Trail and on Instagram as the most happy 78. It's time now for us to re-enter the modern world. As always, I look forward to talking Tudors with you again very soon. Music